This lesson is on saboteurs and partisans. How to support, enable, allow, recognize, and analyze guerrillas is similar somewhat to partisans and saboteurs. In fact, partisans really are just guerrillas, urban or rural, that are on the side of the government that has failed or is outside of power. And saboteurs are either guerrillas outright conducting subversion and sabotage, or perhaps are double agents inside a ruling government. These definitions are often political in nature, depending whose side you're on, depending on the stage of war. I don't want to get too wrapped up in the definitions. If you are interested in a rich debate on who is what, I'm very happy to facilitate that discussion, which lies more in legal scholarship and rhetoric. But for purposes of this two-credit course, I want to focus on the players in the field, the players in the field of subversive warfare, whether they be slow-burn subversives, outright guerrilla fighters, or partisans by propaganda, in times of relative peace and in times edging up to the theoretical idea of absolute war, specifically players on the field that we can affect or leave alone, that we can enable, support, leverage, exploit, or that we can simply recognize and analyze, simply observe and report. Sometimes the best course of action is to do nothing, to get out of the way and ensure there is not some unwanted foreign thumbprint on their partisan goals, whose goals are in consonance with those of U.S. national interests. Oftentimes, a partisan or saboteur's innate influence derives from their seeming independence from outside power. In the seminar, I want us to wrestle with the taxonomy, meaning a fancy word, basically it's a short dictionary of terms and words, to wrestle with the taxonomy of actors and players of subversion, seen through the eyes of case studies. This podcast will be an introduction or reintroduction in the spirit of deep reflection and deep learning of ideas from the Influence Tradecraft Actors Activities Primer which I will hand out before the lesson. You do not need to read this in preparation, especially because in the real world, the meaning of these actors is often smudged over one another. Rarely are actors just fifth columns or just third options or just fellow travelers. And I'll get to this in a minute. A little bit on the readings. Instead of the normal canon books of insurgency and guerrilla warfare from Max Boot, from Liddell Hart, and from Colonel T.E. Lawrence, I've attempted to summarize the writer's of the 20th and 21st century, looking back millennia. So, and this is the Guerrillas, Partisan, Saboteurs Primer. Again, it's for reference. You do not need to read it. Uh, it's there. Please familiarize, familiarize yourself with it if you wish. Uh, it is there for you uh, professionally post-NDU. This is only meant as a reference. It's an attempted summary of about 3,000 years of best practices as executed in the last century and somewhat in this century. What is most important, I think, are the endnotes. If you find yourself suddenly training soldiers and Marines in guerrilla warfare, and let me tell you, as many of you know all too well, better than, better than me, it can happen right quick and all of a sudden in your career. I hope this primer is one helpful source. I'll summarize in a few minutes what I think are some of the most important points for this lesson and this course. Uh, no worries, I'm not just going to read from the primer. I'm just going to highlight a few tenets. Now, on to the Ramsey reading. 
Uh, for CIC listeners, you may ask, why, am for why is Howard forcing you to read this again? Well, first of all, I've added 11 pages, as you can see, and I've added some additional pages beyond the required reading, which is not required, but I put it in the PDF, a couple additional pages. Uh, again, you do not have to read this couple additional pages, just the ones that are described in the syllabus. Um, but I think this book highlights partisan warfare from the perspective of a Western mindset very well. It highlights it, I think, better than all the Kilcullens and Kaluas in the world. And that is just my personal opinion, so please take that with a grain of salt. Other guerrilla journals and books are great, whether Mao, Shea, Lenin, Gubins, Paul Kicks, T. Lawrence, and I recommend Lawrence's Revolt in the Desert, and likewise I recommend his book Seven Pillars of Wisdom, one of my favorite books of all time. We read it many times. Uh, so much that I actually named a former company for the title of that book. Or books about U.S. guerrillas in the Philippines, including interesting books such as American Guerrilla and MacArthur's Spies. I still think that this Ramsey reading shines. In the last decade, there has finally been a windfall in research on the successful guerrilla warfare campaigns in the Philippines by the U.S. Army and by Filipino heroes between 1942 and 1945. I'm not speaking about the Maoist or communist guerrillas. I'm just speaking about the those that were on the side of the Allies against Japan. Ramsey, unlike the original commander of Luzon, that's the biggest island in the Philippines, where we can locate where the uh, capital Manila lies. Ramsey, unlike the original commander of Luzon guerrillas, named Russell Volkman. And by the way, Russell Volkman went on to being a silent godfather of U.S. Army guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, and foreign internal defense, along with the creation, being one of the silent godfathers of behind the creation of the U.S. Army Special Forces. Ramsey did not, unlike Volkman, initially received a strategic vision from General MacArthur, who fled to Australia on orders. The U.S. and Filipino guerrillas between 1942 and 1945 followed communist guerrilla tactics that the Philippine hooks uh, had followed from Mao Zedong. So they basically stole the tradecraft manuals from Mao and then instituted, and in fact instituted them to a much more extreme than Mao did. I'm talking about strategy and tactics, I'm not talking about ideology. And this is something difficult for many commanders, at least at the time, to stomach, to follow the tradecraft of a would-be competitor or adversary, or someone that at least uh, the United States was somewhat wary of at the time. As a uh, U.S. officer in the resistance opine, and this comes from the Ramsey reading, well, Mao Zedong could be a Japanese person, and I am paraphrasing, for all I care, so long as we can use what he says. The American and a Filipino guerrillas took Mao's recommended structures and approaches and took it further, allowing regional guerrilla units to be far more autonomous than Mao would ever have allowed in China. And to quote again from Ramsey, no longer would we follow the Maoist models of cadres. Instead, the resistance would be reorganized, did away with the inequities and vagaries of the cadre system, allowed for decentralized control, and made for a more efficient response to the increasingly grave military and counterintelligence situation we faced. Along with regionalized guerrilla units, the units became more and more indigenous. They went local, if you will. The person that would eventually become the commander, that's Ramsey, of all guerrilla units on the largest Philippine island of Luzon, said about insurgent warfare, 
What Comrade Mao is saying is that we have to turn our weaknesses into strengths. We have to stay on the defensive, but assume the initiative. Take advantage of the train and the fact that the Japanese are fighting in a foreign country among a hostile population. We have to stay flexible, but organized, and avoid pitched battles. Most of all, we have to build our credibility and get the people on our side. We fight only when we have the advantage, but we don't take on the enemy directly, to which his colleague in the book says, and I quote, we attack only when we can win. We attack only when we know we can win. Otherwise, we stay low and concentrate on organizing, gathering intelligence, and sabotage, which is going to be the focus uh, in a week from now in that podcast. Along with a number of treaties on European subversive warfare before and during World War II, from Max Hastings' Secret War to Paul Kix's excellent The Saboteur, I might recommend another of the required readings that we have, which is William Stevenson's A Man Called Intrepid, which sometimes gets accused of being propaganda. And I don't know about that, because the book was thoroughly researched, uh, provided a, or went by a very strict uh, historical or history writing methodology, in my opinion, um, even if it does pay respect to the heroic actions of the subversives and saboteurs against the Nazis in World War II. I especially like this book because it plays up to the sudden surge of having to relearn ancient forms of warfare, something this course, SSS, attempts to address. And I quote here actually from Paul Kicks, who we'll have later on in the semester. And he's talking about relearning old lessons from past wars. Uh, and this is a conversation um, from, or from the minds of the French resistance and those in England as well, importantly. Asymmetric fighting was in fact so well established, the first counterinsurgency manual emerged in 600 AD, while the most famous guerrilla tract of T.E. Lawrence's The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, the book based on his experience, experiences in World War I, helping disparate bands of Bedouin tribesmen push the mighty Turks out of Arabia. But by the outset of World War II, even though Lawrence's colleagues had survived, the agencies that had supported them had not. So, in May of 1940, with the situation in France worsening, the British chiefs, had, uh, the British chiefs recommended to, to the war cabinet a new, and I quote, special organization that would create widespread revolt in Germany's conquered territory. So once again, we had to relearn our old ways of fighting subversive warfare. So now for some key findings in the guerrillas, partisan saboteurs primer. First, conventional warfare of army pitted against army is a relatively new concept. Avoid adversary strength and instead target vulnerabilities. Patiently prick an enemy for years or decades. Unless armies seize absolute control across border territories for over a generation or more than 40 years, or somehow kill all members and would-be recruits and salt the seals, a counterinsurgency is unlikely to succeed easily. This is a debatable point that I'm happy to have a dis facilitated discussion on in... Uh, in a seminar, if you wish. This is from T.E. Lawrence. Do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than that you do it perfectly. Do not try to trade on what you know of fighting. 
your ideal position, and this is the position of the protagonist of the government that may want to enable or support guerrillas or partisans, your ideal position is when you are present and not noticed. To go on, some tenets that come out of this primer, and I'm trying to summarize the best I can here. Social, political, cultural, and geographic conditions in each area must determine the strategy, tactics, composition, disposition, and command structure to employ. If someone is an expert at guerrilla warfare in the Philippines, it's unlikely to translate perfectly to Colombia, for example. Guerrilla warfare is a human endeavor. There are no mechanical panaceas. This is something also that's hard for many people to stomach. The outside mentality that allows groups that otherwise may not have much in common or that may be at odds with one another to temporarily unite for a larger common cause may be important. So, excuse me, the anti-outsider mentality. So, in other words, when there is an enemy, let's say there is a new government that you as a guerrilla or partisan or saboteur are fighting against, oftentimes you can find very strange bedfellows, bedfellows focused on a singular threat. To go on, effective militiamen and their supporters already exhibit the will to suffer and sacrifice without material gain. Promising revolts cannot be bought. Inflexibility without giving in to com compromise, fatigue, or bribery defines the fighter and the fight. There is no place for a defeatist attitude. A successful movement will not await favorable con conditions, but may make the conditions favorable. As the movement continues, superior morale will play a key role in success. People support, as well as acting, always as representatives of a population, is the center of gravity, or at least I should say a center of gravity in some guerrilla warfare campaigns. Guerrillas become the nucleus of a popular movement in these cases. Ultimately, it is a people's war. Support of the people for the militiamen is a continued necessity. Otherwise, if the security arm of any movement fails to maintain popular backing, they may become destabilizing bandits. Guerrilla and village forces are not auxiliary assets for a campaign, like Russia and the United States have often viewed them, for example, in Afghanistan, but instead the main effort on which all other efforts rely. So, guerrillas, partisan saboteurs, they are not there as auxiliary assets, they are not there to amplify uh, events or amplify missions, but instead they may be viewed perhaps in some cases or in many cases as a main effort. People in their villages are their literal base of offer, uh, operations throughout the campaign. The need for a literal fortress or base is a cause and sign of weakness. So you want your base of operations to be amongst the populations and not actually have physical bases that can be targeted easily. Rural areas are normally favorable because they are often out of reach of oppressors, but there's a lot of trade crap that has been written, especially out of Brazil, for example, on urban saboteurs and urban partisan warfare. To attain victory, guerrilla action requires economic, political, and social input. All economic, di diplomatic, logistical, ideological, and agricultural strength, though, must translate into martial victory over an enemy in guerrilla warfare. And this is what we're gonna talk about during our sabotage lesson, which is at the end of the day, the power really is the ability and will to kill.
When it comes to an insurrection, it often faces seemingly paradoxically a war of attrition with a ruling force wearing down. So it's a war of attrition against a ruling force. So it's wearing down an enemy to deny that enemy influence and presence person by person and square mile by square mile. A guerrilla force then is forced to use all assets, any tactic, and any trick to defeat the enemy enduringly. So think to active measure subversion and unrestricted political warfare to that type of mindset. And finally, information operations is not just essential, but it is central to strategy in guerrilla warfare that must be coordinated and employed robustly in both friendly and enemy-held territories. And we'll talk a bit more about this in future seminars. So now I want to go on with a bit of the taxonomy. Uh, I'm going to try to summarize some of the major points of the primer that I referred to on partisans, guerrillas, and saboteurs. And I'm going to be speaking to specifically five elements, five types of players that are on the playing field. First, we have fifth columns, civil society or government networks in an adversarial state that will work against that state and or for an outside power. So in other words, you have a network that's, let's say, working against an adversary of the United States inside that state we would then want to leverage, allow, enable them in order to either soften the target or in some cases to support them to overcome perhaps the uh, ruling class uh, in the government uh, in certain circumstances. Then we have this idea of fellow travelers. These are individuals abroad, can be at home as well, uh, as we'll talk about in a case study, who happen to already be working towards your government's goals. They may wish to avoid overt relationship, especially if a fellow traveler's influence derives from her independence. And instead, subtly, silently, invisibly, and distantly support and amplify. And I quote here from a U.S. Marine Corps Colonel, Eric Hastings, Vladimir Lenin used the pejorative phrase, useful idiots, to describe fellow traveling Western intellectuals who defended and promoted, in the name of equality and justice, Lenin's totalitarian program. Now, many scholars think that there's a big difference between useful idiots and fellow travelers. In fact, if you go to the original uses of the idea of useful idiots, uh, useful idiot is a lot like fellow traveler. I typically don't use the word useful idiot because that implies that these people are idiots when in fact sometimes they're very well-meaning and they don't realize or they're unwittingly going along uh, with an enemy's plans. So we have fifth columns and fellow travelers. Third is third options. Unaffiliated third parties, contractors or mercenaries not paid or hired directly by a government and not a formally affiliated with a government of a state that will act directly on the state's behalf abroad. And so this is normally done through secrecy and deception. So there's not a money trail for a third, uh, for a third option that will lead its way back to a government, but they still will act on behalf of the government. Then we have agents provocateurs, agents that infiltrate into or pretend to be with an op opposition network to discredit that opposition, to conduct or spur actions that would lead to arrest or public outrage. An example, some historians claim that Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser failed assassination attempt against him during a live 
1954 radio broadcast, which you could probably listen to still on YouTube if those videos are up, was likely staged and used as an excuse to subsequently crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood, on communists and other dissenters. So this case you have someone or you have a scenario that was created in order to conduct a crackdown. So fifth and finally, we have uh, private investors, private investment donation to secondary parties that will eventually support fellow traveler influencers. Investors should only have informal and perhaps unknown relationships with the protagonist government, and funds should be funneled or cleaned through as many intermediaries as possible before landing in the lap of the unwitting agents of influence. So this could be through grants and fellowships and donations, for example. So let's look at a quick case study, and that is the case study of the CIA and abstract expressionism. I can't believe every time I say that, those two words in the same sentence, uh, I'm, it always kind of wakes me up like a cup of coffee, um, because those two things don't seem to belong together, but they did in the 1950s and 60s. So what I'm going to describe is a type of subversion or a type of subversive warfare through layered intermediaries. And I want you to think through who might be the third options, the fifth columns, who might be the fellow travelers, who might be those private investors. Okay, it's not really important that you, it's, this is, there's no school book answer to this. Uh, it's more that I want to get in the spirit of understanding the different players who oftentimes slide between being a third option an investor, a fellow traveler, and being perhaps part of a fifth column. Reportedly, the CIA indirectly helped to promote U.S. abstract expressionism in the 1950s and 60s. And here I'm going to quote from the author Francis Saunders. As I, and I'm quoting from Saunders, because in the propaganda war of the Soviet Union, this new artistic movement could be held up as proof of the creativity, the intellectual freedom, and the cultural power of the U.S. Russian art strapped into the communist ideological straitjacket could not compete. So we see that U.S. administrations did not care for modern art at the time and would have, un would have been unlikely allies or promoters. President Truman is known to have said, if that's art, then I'm a Hottentrot. I don't know what a Hottentrot means. If any of you guys want to look it up and, and let me know, please tell me. I've looked it up and I still don't get what a Hottentrot means. It's an old-timey word, I guess, that Truman used. He called modern art at the time, Truman called, a kind of trash. Some painters were formerly communist sympathizers, and most were not a part of any U.S. political mainstream circles. So these could perhaps be seen as fellow travelers or unwitting fellow travelers. According to former CIA case officer Donald Jameson, as he published, and I'm quoting here, uh, it had very, they had, this is the painters, the artists, had very little respect for the government. They were closer to Moscow than to Washington. So perhaps they made very good fellow travelers in that they could be seen as somewhat independent of the U.S. government. The U.S. government organization set up to quietly and indirectly promote modern art. In 1947, the CIA had the Propaganda Assets Inventory. Also the same year, the Department of State had the Advancing American Art Program. In 1950, the CIA had the International Organizations Division, and later on in the 1950s, the CIA had or supported the Congress for Cultural Freedom. 
And I am once again quoting from a former CIA officer, or former CIA officer, Tom Braden. We would go to somebody in New York who was a well-known rich person, and we would say, we want to set up a foundation. We would tell him that we were trying to do and pledge him to secrecy, and he would say, of course I'll do it. And then you would publish a letterhead, and his name would be on it, and there would be a foundation. It was really a pretty simple device. And so we had, for example, U.S. millionaire, civilian, Nelson Rockefeller, whose mother had a passion for expressionism. He held a number of exhibits and events for international audiences at his Museum of Modern Art in New York. And then we had the U.S. art promoter and millionaire, Julius Fleischmann, who supplemented his funds with those covertly from the U.S. government. And he was behind the Fairfield Foundation of 1958 to support expressionist artists. So, we're going to go over all of these terms and these ideas in seminar. There's a lot of information here in this podcast, but no worries. We're going to have a lot of time in the next four lessons to go over and sort of crack this open. And if there is time in this seminar, we are going to use as a case study. Again, if there is time for small group discussions in seminar, we will use that time for the case study of Forward Pass, which is the clandestine deal between President Reagan and the Pope in order to collapse the Soviet Union from bottom up, from top down, from outside in, and from inside out. Thank you.